All right, everyone, welcome to the All Saints Sandbox Chat. I am so excited today to start, but uh, first, Mike, I, I almost forgot our, our intro music. Uh, you got you got some good intro music for us? You know, today? Jason, I think that, you know, as I think about this today, there's a little extra um, probably trombone and a little extra uh, electric guitar in our music today because our guest today is incredible. So as we get ready to go in... That's my slide trombone, in case you were wondering. All right, that was nice. That was good. <laughs> Outstanding. <laughs> well, I'm excited today because uh, I'm always excited for ISIS podcast, but I'm especially excited today because one of uh, my inspirations from probably for a decade at least, if not more time, ha has been our guest. Uh, he just is one of the most thoughtful, intelligent people, especially in the design thinking and innovation space that I've been around. And uh, he's also a little bit of an introvert like I am, which is a, a fun, fun little piece that we connected with over Fuse. But we're excited to welcome Bo Adams to the podcast today. And then Bo, uh, we generally like to you to give your official title because, you know, it, it's always changing and ever evolving. So what, what's your official title today? Yeah, well, thank you so much for that introduction. That was way too kind and um, learned so much from the both of you for many years. I am the Chief Learning and Innovation Officer at Mount Vernon School in Atlanta, Georgia, and CLIO, the uh, acronym CLIO helps me remember it each day. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, Bo, I also want to say how grateful I am that you're joining us today, but but also thankful for the ways you've inspired us over the years. Uh, we, we make uh, no bones about that we follow uh, what you do and what Mount Vernon does as an exemplar for us. And we continually try to measure ourselves against the ways that you're engaging students, not only in, again, great outcomes, but in the process, right? That, that, that the, the way that you go through it is so incredible to me. And uh, I actually got to see it firsthand. I've always uh, followed you and, and from a distance, but you were able to visit our campus a couple of years ago, and you were so, again, gracious to join us with some sixth graders in the Design Thinking Challenge. I mean, kids you didn't know, and in a, a really a, a minute's notice almost, you jumped, jumped in, and I was amazed at how you, again, took that with such, again, just a, a incredible skill, but also it was fun, it was engaging, and our kids that year um, will never forget that moment. So again, I'm, I'm excited to have you join the podcast today and thankful for all the things you've already done for our school and for our students. Well, thank you. I love being there on campus for that sandbox experience and getting to interact with the faculty and um, the sandbox crew you had assembled, as well as the students, they were they were fantastic and a great uh, visit at the campus, seeing all the incredible things you have going on. Fine. Yeah. Well, as everyone knows, uh, we're here just to kind of hang out and talk and and do those things that we love about the sandbox, those in between times at conferences where you just get to sit down with people that are like minded and passionate about things, um, and, and just talk about what you're passionate about. So. Bo, we're, we're really curious because uh, I'm sure it, you got all kinds of things that you're passionate about. But but right now, what are the things that you're pondering and what, what are you passionate about? Uh, personally or professionally? Both. Let's do both. 
Um, gosh, personally, I am very passionate about my two sons. I have an 11th grader, Philip, and a ninth grader, Jackson, and uh, hugely passionate about being their dad. And uh, hobby and interest-wise, I'm so deeply passionate about just education um, has always been a huge curiosity to me and how we learn, but um, I also pursue a, some hobbies around mountaineering. Um, I'm by no means highly advanced, but I love to hike and mountain bike and rock climb, uh, kayak, and just picked up skiing for the first time in my life two years ago. Um, I'm now 51, so as a 49-year-old and, and love it. Uh, so that's kind of on the personal side, and I'm building a uh, I'm building a camper box for the back of my Subaru Outback, so that I can use it as a suburban vehicle during the day and week, but also um, make some additional adventure trips out of the back of it. Uh, nice. Is uh is Philip still bouldering quite a bit and really into that, or has he moved on to something even better? He is, he's working at the uh, climbing gym and still boulders um, on occasion, not quite the uh, seven day a week that he was into it for a while. He's gotten very into weightlifting and um, he's generally entrepreneurial about something going on his, in his life. So uh, he started a wooden hold company for bouldering years ago. And now he's gotten interested in uh, some fashion design and has created a, he and three friends have created a line of um, sweatshirts, hats, et cetera, that have been okayed by the upper school head and the dean of student life assistant head of, or associate head of uh, upper school um, and has gotten entrepreneurial about that. So um he spends a great deal of time outdoors and working at the climbing gym, but has tempered some of the radical climbing he was doing. That's so cool. So what, what, um, can we, can we plug the business? Has he got a website or anything? Is they at that point yet? Are they still in the phase one? That's so nice. especially with all the entrepreneurial work that your students do. And, um, it's, it's called T-Bog university. Our, associate head of upper school, Trish Bogdanchik, who um, not too long ago was announced will be our new head of upper school next year. Um, she is just an amazing educator. And um, when that announcement was made, the students created this idea of uh, T-Bog, Trish Bogdanchik University, uh, uh -huh. about her uh, assuming this role of head of upper school and just kind of a show of fun and and support. And uh, so they've created a Shopify store and have been doing some uh, digital product drops. And we'll start actually, Philip's been wearing the sample to school recently. And uh, they've been putting all that business together and all of the things that come with it, like being on line with the tech department of an online digital shopping platform. And um, all of the trying to figure out revenues and costs and profit margins and uh, materials selections and all, doing all the design work that he's been picking up for a few years in innovation diploma program here. So uh, he gets excited about it, which is great. I love that. We will definitely include that link uh, in the podcast. So uh, 
you're listening, look below and click on that. That would be fantastic. Um, you're speaking my love language there, as you know, uh, with uh, allowing students to actually find their own passions and then find ways to actually deliver it to the world. It's, uh, that sounds exactly what you're talking about. Tell us some of the other things that are going on. That's a great example there. What are some other things you're working on or areas that are keeping you right now deep in thought and excited about education? Yeah, that, so it's kind of the tie that in with Jason's question about passions from a professional standpoint. I'm, you know, looking back on things, sometimes it's a lot easier to connect the dots looking back, but I think the, um, what I'm hugely passionate about is this research question that's been a part of my life for uh, a couple of decades now, and that's if school is meant to prepare people for real life, why doesn't school look more like real life? Mm -hmm. um, Early when I came up with the question, uh, it was, uh, why doesn't school look a thing like real life? But I think a lot of schools have made uh, changes and adaptations now. So I think what I'm hugely passionate about is creating conditions and setting conditions where students are getting to do work as school that has relevance to the real world, so to speak, quote unquote, real world, because obviously school is their real world. Um, but beyond just work that's done for a teacher's eyes only, and then who knows what happens to it after the teachers assessed it and evaluated, um, I really believe in helping to set conditions where students are doing work that has relevance and pertinence and impact on the world now. So creating agency in them, I, I, I can certainly speak for my two children um, that when they make a statement like, when are they going to do something about X, Y, or Z? Um, I remind them that we uh, have chosen Mount Vernon for the last nine years of our life on purpose because Mount Vernon is uh, passionate as an organization about setting conditions for students to do real world work and to feel agency over things like, you know, this water bottle that I'm holding it is full of design decisions. And rather than thinking that only a water bottle designer could do something about that water bottle, that I have agency to actually use something like a visible thinking routine to unpack this object. So maybe parts, purposes, and complexities, and to think about what are all the different decisions that were made and how to make different design decisions, ideally based on user needs, right? So like this water bottle doesn't fit in the car holder that's in the, between the front uh, driver's seat and passenger seat of my car. So there's a great many design decisions about, am I gonna 3D print like an adapter that holds this in the center of my car so it doesn't move? Could I rethink the way the car um, water bottle or coffee cup can holder is created? Um, the water bottle top is a certain diameter, which means it creates certain advantages and disadvantages. Could I rethink that? So um, I certainly have pursued this idea in my own professional life. And it's one of the reasons why I was attracted to Mount Vernon almost a decade ago is uh, the organization, the school trying to figure out more and more ways to make uh, learning relevant and meaningful and to have an impact well beyond just the teacher evaluating one's work. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, again, why I respect you so much is that you've shaped so much of my thought around that, because that's what I believe is the challenge for educators today is to think about the, the, the ways that we can authentically engage our students in learning 
and then have that relevancy. But then the agency, I always say that they, they're so connected. And many times even we talk about it as two different things, but they're really the same or they're connected because the more that you have authentic learning experiences going on, the more kids want to own it and intrinsically be involved with it. The more they're intrinsically involved with it, the more it becomes authentic. Um, I, we, we have experiences all the time where students come up with ideas that we never would have generated. And it's because they had agency. So, so I'm curious though, because I, I really am always, uh, you know, pressing this uh, boundary. What what are the the reasons why uh, you think it's it, it's a, what are the barriers for teachers doing this in schools across the country? Because oftentimes when I ask teachers, they don't even know what the barriers are themselves. But it just seems to be this thing we can't do. We we can't give more authentic experiences, or we we can't give any more agency than our kids have. So what are those reasons why you think some schools aren't going as far or as fast with this? Yeah, that's a great, great question. And um, maybe not to, not to intentionally slip into education ease too soon in this conversation, but <laughs> um, one thing that pops into my brain is just the difference between a prescriptive curriculum and a descriptive curriculum. So for instance, you know, with a prescriptive curriculum, um, we know that a school might expect a student to have a certain number of credits in history or social sciences, a certain number of credits in mathematics and science, et cetera, right? We prescribe that uh, maybe a sophomore, all sophomores take biology or they take a particular humanities nine course in their freshman year versus a descriptive curriculum, which our students are involved in all the time. Like, ours, yours, everybody's students across the country and the world are involved in all the time. If a student gets, you know, a, a child, a young adult gets really interested in something, one of the things they often do is they go and look up something on YouTube and they try to figure out something like just this morning on my walk with my dog, Lucy, and I'm trying to figure out how to rehang a drawer on a, um, heavy duty drawer slide system that I purchased for this Outback camper box I'm building. And I didn't install it exactly right, obviously, because it's binding, right? So I haven't built many custom drawers in my life and hung them, um, especially in an application like this. So I went to YouTube and searched some different search strings, and I wasn't quite sure what I was going to learn. And there wasn't like a prescribed curriculum that I was being told to do. It was something that I needed to know. So I went out and found it. So um, I think that prescriptive versus descriptive curriculum can get in people's way. And I think the, you know, we as humans learn so much through projects and forgive the dings that keep going on in my notifications. Uh, I guess that's the occupational hazard for us. Um, but I think the uh, projects is how we learn as human beings and a descriptive curriculum works beautifully with projects. And I, I think that just takes a lot of practice as an educator, right? If I got into education because I love children and because I am really passionate about social sciences curriculum, then there might be a set of things that I really like to teach that um, are part of the curriculum. Maybe there are even expectations as students go on to the next chapter, right? Maybe it's a requirement of colleges and universities that start to shape things. Um, but with a project, I might have four students working on a project and they might be developing a new set of cards, right? They've gamified this idea of when uh, 
seniors graduate from high school and go to college, maybe a set of cards that help parents connect with their students in college with daily prompts, which is a, a project that a group of my students is working on right now in social entrepreneurship class. Um, well, two of them today were really digging into graphic design work and two others were digging into marketing. That did not come from a prescribed curriculum. It came from a need to know in launching this endeavor. And I think that can be um, can be intimidating to an educator to think, well, what is it they, they should be learning? So I think that explains this shift to competency-based education that's happening across the country that is also a huge passion of mine, is to think in terms of uh, differently than topic areas, which is how most curricula have been organized, right, is to think in terms of standards and competencies, uh, learning outcomes that can be achieved through different projects, right? Mm -hmm. And um, in terms of kind of flipping the switch on Mike's question of um, what makes it so hard, I think that things like gold standard PBL and the project approach um, have tools that enable faculty working alone or in teams to start to do things like lace together the desired outcomes from standards and um, like a student can read critically and but do that through lots of different means right so that not everybody's having to read the same book even so um, and I think the third thing that came to mind Mike is time gets in the way right that's the um, it's the commodity that I think educators value most and and um, I sometimes call some real furrowed brows when I talk about that we're still largely on a farming calendar, an agricultural calendar, um, and that one of the reasons why we have homework issues in many schools across the country is because we're trying to compress a lot of material into a shortened annual calendar. So how did we resolve that? We just started to assign work at night while they were at home. Um, but I think time gets in the way, too, because um, one of my sons, uh, to kind of go back to an analogy, one of my sons started to walk a little after nine months, and one of my sons started to walk at 13 months. They are both, I would evaluate them as advanced or master level walkers now at uh, almost 15 and 17, but they didn't learn it at the same rate, and that's okay but when you're on a calendar that defines you as freshman from August to May, then people start to feel this time crunch. And so this, these moves to a more potentially descriptive curriculum amongst competencies with time, um, I think can be intimidating for people, understandably so. Mm -hmm. So you brought up a couple of things there that, well, you brought up a ton of things. I could spend the next eight hours discussing just the last 10 minutes or five minutes that you talked, but the, the two parts that really jumped out to me are, are as we think about reshaping learning environments, right? There's, there's lots of elements to that, but one of the big elements is how we put together the curriculum and the time that that curriculum is taught in. But then the other part that really jumped out to me was the, the teachers and the talent that we bring in to facilitate that learning. And the way that you described learning through, I've got a problem. I need to figure out how to hang the, you know, this cabinet. I've never done it before. How did I go through it? 
reminds me of, of my favorite question to ask in an interview and and I'll I'll ruin it for anybody that listens to the podcast but it'll help them prepare if they ever interview with us is what's the last thing you learned and how'd you learn it because I think that question a most people have never been asked that question and b how they approach that answer tells me so much about their thoughts on learning right do they go back to oh well I took this class and this is the last thing I learned or did they say oh I had a problem just the other day and how do we learn it and I'm really curious how how I mean, we are trying so hard and and Mike and I could talk about this for days, but how do we change talent acquisition and what it means to be a teacher in our world these days so that we do get teachers that are comfortable leading a type of class that you're describing as opposed to the type of class that we probably all went through. So, So how are you guys rethinking that at Mount Vernon and just in your own life? Yeah, that's another great question. And um, I know this is y'all's podcast, but any of these questions that y'all are asking, um, I feel like I need to flip the question back on y'all and ask y'all a question. <laughs> Absolutely, uh, go for it. <laughs> so, um, it's, Jason, it's such a great question. I think the um, the overly simplistic, like theoretical, philosophical answer is teacher education, maybe pre-teaching and in-career professional learning it needs to look a more a lot more like what we're asking of them to do with students so um you know i mentioned a little while ago about learning how to ski later in my life at age 49 and it would be very challenging for me to take on a position as ski school instructor based on what i know and when i started skiing um, I would fear for those people who would be ski school students of mine. Um, so I imagine a lot of what a ski school instructor does is they ski, right? And then they learn the pedagogy of skiing. So um, I really believe that the big shift in our educational world or, and really in our schooling world, right? So Learning is this natural, amazing, phenomenal thing that we as humans undertake from the time we're, we're born until we pass away. And um, school sometimes gets in the way of that natural learning. But I, I really think one of the, the pivot transitions is switching from this idea of a prescribed curriculum that is very subject topic specific. And trust me, those of you that are listening, I really believe that content and knowledge are really important, right? And there's just so much of it that you have, it's hard to make choices about what you're going to prioritize. So um, I think it's switching from that, from uh, so heavy in content and topic driving to projects driving um, the system. And so getting teachers involved in meaningful, purposeful projects that are, most projects are transdisciplinary by nature, right? They don't fall under just one subject heading. So um, people around here are probably tired of me using the metaphor of uh, record albums versus Spotify playlists. But when I was in school, when y'all were in school, I think probably all of us had the similar experience of like math comes as an album, right? You, You have to take the whole album And when I was growing up and I was really interested in like Journey as a band, um, I had to buy the whole album 
if I was just interested in one song or two songs. Whereas with Spotify playlists, I can kind of mix and match from lots of different bands, right? And so that's one metaphor that has been helpful for me and hopefully for others in thinking about, you know, if I listen to six albums, a math album, a science album, et cetera, or I mix them all up in projects on playlists, at the end of X amount of time, I might have actually been able to listen to the same songs, like in the most uh, ridiculous uh, realization of the analogy, or I might have realized that it's the skills and habits of mind and dispositions and process orientations that it really doesn't matter if Jason, Mike, or I are listening to the same songs on our playlists. It's that we're organizing playlists and we are pursuing projects and we're learning what to do when we don't know what to do and getting fascinated by the topic and by the content because we have a purpose for it, right? If I had to learn five Shakespearean tragedies because somebody told me to, I did so because I was a good student who wanted to perform well. But if I knew that learning about those five Shakespearean tragedies had an application, right? Like I'm putting on an event for the Shakespeare Theater in Montgomery, Alabama, where a bunch of uh, performers are coming and they want to understand what it's like to be 14 to 18 years old and relating to Shakespeare. And now I have a different lens through which to look at that work, right? Like I might be very differently motivated to learn about those five Shakespearean tragedies because I know that it has a purpose to help these theater actors understand the 14 to 18 year old age group in relationship to this subject matter, right? Mm -hmm. But if you, if the three of us are in a class together, putting this project together, I don't know that we need to all read the same tra tragedies, right? We might actually um, benefit from Jason reading two or three, Mike reading two or three, me reading two or three, and trying to find some of the commonalities by talking about them. And then each of us has really learned six to nine tragedies when all we really had to do is read two or three. So I know I'm probably, y'all are going to re-listen to this um, or start editing and realize that one, he talks too long. And two, <laughs> um, it sounds so philosophical. And what we were looking for is the practical of what a teacher can do. Um, and I, I just think teachers, you know, they have they have a really hard job. Teaching and learning is an incredibly complex human task. And until we actually provide time to get immersed in some of these ways of learning, I think we'll fight an uphill battle as administrators and finding ways to help um, grease the skid, so to speak, for them. Um, I think that's why some of the schools and some of the countries that we um, have touted for a couple of decades when we started to talk about 21st century skills and the, the change. We, so we started to look to schools like, um, or countries like Finland and Japan. Well, one common denominator among those schools is their teachers spend proportionally less time in class teaching because they're spending more time collaborating with peers and colleagues because the work's really hard. Mm -hmm. and so I'll come up for air and hopefully make your, your editing job easier. <laughs> I, I, I love that. And, you know, one thing I would just say that we talk a lot about is that a lot of schools are mentioning agency for students. They forget 
you can't have agency for students if you don't have agency for teachers. And that's a really big part of how we build that the atmosphere around school is you, you've got to allow the teachers the chance to, to make some of those decisions. I love how you're describing how curriculum could look different from, again, being that prescriptive, but being descriptive and allowing teachers to have a role in that. But also know that those uh, outcomes may not all be as predictable. But what we've found in many of our authentic learning experiences, um, I think about our e-cafe or a retail store, um, Jason and I are two former economics teachers. We have some things we really want the kids to learn because that's something that is important to us. Uh, but what we found is they actually have learned um, things that we wouldn't have put on our list in addition to those things. And uh, what they're learning are things they really need to know. I mean, yeah. real life, right? So though I, I love uh, diminishing marginal returns, it's one of my favorite lessons to teach. Um, it, it may actually not be the most important though for them to, to learn to actually run a business. And that we have to sometimes give that agency to us as teachers as well to, to make some of those decisions on the fly. Um, so it's hard though, because as a school administrator now for way too many years, um, I, I like to say, I, I kind of want to know though exactly what's going to happen here. And the more we do that, the more we limit the opportunities, but also for that um, really intrinsic learning to happen. Yep, agreed. Yeah, I was uh, an economics major in undergraduate school. And <laughs> so I, I feel you too, that there are some things and, and I, you know, I wrestle with this as a father as well, of being someone who considers himself an innovative educator and uh, on a team of uh educational innovators alongside you, um, but thinking that there are certain things that I want my sons to graduate from high school with knowing like topic and knowledge wise. So it, it is this tension um, that is an important one for us to engage as, as a school community, right? I, I like that analogy or that comparison because I still remember when my daughter who's now 23 uh, got ready to head off to college that literally that day as she was getting ready to or loading her car I started thinking all the things that I thought I had not taught her yet and I realized at that moment like I, I will never teach her everything that I want her to know but I had to like calm myself down and think you you've taught her the things she needs to know right I think as a as a school that's what we really need to focus on and I think it's more about mindsets more about the competencies and the skills as you mentioned than it is about one piece of knowledge, especially in our information age that we live in now, that our kids will YouTube something um, if they need it to figure out how to do one thing. But if they don't know how to YouTube or how to go about being a problem solver, then it really doesn't matter what I poured into them. Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, the tension is so understandable that um, there are so many things we want our young people to learn, our students, our learners mm -hmm. to learn. Um, and I think we probably just, maybe it's, it's unintentional, like many things in life happen where it's a little step this way and a little step that way. And before you realize that you've gone a mile mm -hmm. um, of that, we've just so privileged um, a more content driven curriculum that we have uh, over time edged out things like students pursuing their own interests and curiosities in school. And so I think to some degree, part of what we're trying to do is like rebalance in some ways, because I do think exposure is important, right? So there, um, I think there's some things that is probably important to expose students to so that they start to learn whether is that something I'm interested or curious about, or am I not? So I've mentioned Shakespearean tragedy earlier, right? Like, I don't think we should throw out things like studying Shakespeare just because I happen to be heavy into project-based learning. I think I've um, I tried to say 
that it's the context in which it's packaged, right? And that, I think that's an important part for us to, to reconsider. Yeah, I always went back to when I was a teacher trying to make this transition um, to to be inquiry based, be project based, you know, and, and I always came back to this professional guilt is how I referred to it. It was the only way that I could really describe what I was feeling is that I need them to know X amount of things by the end of this. And what I realized at the end is if I could, you know, you know, distill what those X amount of things were then I could ask questions and create environments that were going to lead to that. So going back to economics, if I wanted to do eCafe and I know that I wanted them to understand the difference between inputs and outputs, and I wanted them to understand what happens with cost of inputs rising and you know, then I can get into inflation and I can talk about elasticity of demand, that those are things that I'm gonna, I have to have them leave that class knowing for me to feel any good at all. But then I realized I don't have to just teach those. If I create an environment where they have to sell something, well, they're going to have to understand an input. They're going to have to understand if I ask them to price things and I'll make them adjust prices, they're going to start to understand the elasticity of demand, even though they may not understand what it is in the beginning. If I keep asking the right questions, they're going to get to the point where they have to understand that. And that was a big shift for me as an educator, and it's still a big shift to try to to inform others until you've done it a couple times and and understand at the end, oh, wait a minute, they are going to get all those professional guilt things that I have away. And and so I kind of scaffolded it in the beginning. I had lessons on elasticity of demand that I would have them do as quote unquote homework um, in the beginning so that I made sure that they got that. And then by the time, you know, you evolve and you're like, they're going to get that no matter what I do, if I go through that. And so that was a big thing for me personally. Yeah, I was going to, I was going to add to that, Jason, that I think what I, I found over the years too, is that there's the, you know, it, it, there's a surface level about how it looks too. I mean, I do think early in my career, if you ask some of my students about any of those economic terms, their answer would have seemed really good because I created, yes, I created this <laughs> real memory response to it, right? But if you had asked them to apply that or if they went to the real world and it ever hit them in the face, they wouldn't even know what it was. Like that wasn't the same thing. Whereas when kids are authentically engaged and there's an intrinsic learning going on, that, that they may not be able to define it in the way that my students did when I was doing the rote memory exercises, but they can actually apply it. They can actually do something with it. And that's when I came to that realization that I'd rather my kids be able to do um, with the things that they learn and things they're engaged with and to be able just to regurgitate something. And but but I think that too many of our schools are structured around. We love the regurgitation. I mean, it just sounds so good. I, hey, guys, welcome. We have Bo Adams in class. Please tell him right now these three terms. And they say it. and They're like, man, look how smart my kids are. Right. So I think that's one of the challenges. And it certainly was one for me as I was teaching. Yeah, the um, you know, made me think of, I think you're exactly right, Jason. That was a great example about the difference between teaching economics concepts and versus having like eCafe being that need to know, right? That provocation for why they would want to learn those things and what might contribute to the um, one piece of teacher school, so to speak, that I think helped free me of my guilt was when they taught me about the three different curricula, right? The intended curriculum the implemented curriculum and the attained curriculum. And I started to pay more attention to like, if we use the alphabet to be the intended curriculum, A through Z, that what I actually can get to as a teacher (laughs) 
is maybe A through M because I just run out of time and over plan. And especially with courses like, uh, you know, history survey courses of history where you're trying to march from like pre-Columbian uh, America to all the way to present day, right? Um, and then, but the attained curriculum is maybe A through G, right? What they actually retain attain and like take with them for the rest of their life. So like that has stuck with me as I've gotten into more of this project-based learning transformation in schools is, you know, what if we could get from A through G, what if we could get back to A through M and actually have them retain and attain that because they're so interested and so passionate about it. And when I watch the parallel learning happen, the learning that happens in a quote unquote traditional school, and then I watch the way students learn outside of school where there's something that they want to know, need to know, and they are just ruthless about the time that they will spend learning it, that those questions fuel a much deeper understanding. So to Mike's point about like regurgitating a definition, like the more that they live elasticity of prices, the more that they're going to be able to explain it, not from some, you know, trite answer, but because they can give you examples of, well, here's how it happened in September in the eCafe versus what was going on in November. Yeah. I, I think that, that one of those things, and, and we continue to evolve in this idea because we've been, really want to do entrepreneurism, you know, since we got to All Saints. It's a passion of both Mike and I in, in different ways. But, you know, we've we've built the cafe. We have the egg sales for uh, second graders now. We have the farm for fourth graders. So we built all of these things and they're way better than simulations. But we started a project this year called the Compassion Project, where we um, adopted two uh, students from around the world in each grade level. And uh, we sponsored the main part of it as a school, but then we required that our each grade level come up and raise money for birthdays and Christmas. And so now all of a sudden we have seen some incredible entrepreneurial businesses pop up in every grade level with kids out gathering wood in the woods and selling wood as, as their thing, just to give an example. But what we discovered was that even when we were giving them a real thing here, you have eggs, you have chickens, you have eggs, you've got to sell these eggs. It was still us putting upon them kind of in a way as we talk about that agency when they now had, Oh, we have to get this so that we can help our friends in, in, you know, Zimbabwe get a Christmas gift. Now they owned it. And it was just a, I mean, it started off very much as a service project. And, and as we talk about service learning and all those things, but it came back to exactly what you said, that synergy of all of the elements that we had. And now we're living those entrepreneurial mindsets so much better this year than we ever had because it was a true authentic need that wasn't put upon them, but that they invested in in a different way. And I just think that's so powerful, even as we try to build these things to, to think about, oh, we, we, we took a step, but this was even another step. Mm -hmm. and, and I just add to that, that the interesting thing is that was not a well thought out uh, thing that we set around and we diagrammed out. This will be the result of that was the, it, it happened. Uh, we, we had the um, I think the atmosphere and the culture around here that we could have those kind of possibilities, uh, you know, jump out. Uh, but it is that that's one of the huge realizations I've had over the last 12 months is that 
that we were creating authentic experiences, we weren't creating authentic whys around those. Uh, and, and two kids from the 80s, we kept saying, well, shouldn't they just want to make money and then do that? No, actually, you know what? That's not a driver as much for our kids today as it was for us. My I went out and had lawn mowing businesses. So we'd never gotten our hands around this idea about how to help kids through that. We were just trying to create that experience, but now we've got to do a better job helping kids have their their why. Why, why would they even want to be entrepreneurial? Why would they want to have a, a, a business or an energy project? So I think that's a really cool thing. What are you all doing to create those whys for your students and how they start their design thinking and their, their work in the community? Yeah, that great question. We do it in a, a lot of different ways, right? So one of the things that you made me think of as y'all were sharing, um, is the uh, multiple year transformation through a program we have here called I Project, right? And the I of I Project is not because we're Apple product devotees, but it's because there are three words that start our mission. We're a school of inquiry, innovation, and impact. And so um, I Project started out as a way to just carve out a little bit of time right? 75 minutes a week. It was not very much time at all, but it's, we figured out a way to kind of create a wedge and drive some time to um, rebalance, like we were talking about earlier, a purely content subject-driven curriculum to wedging in 75 minutes a week of, you know, some people call it genius hour in other settings. Um, it was a chance for us to um, provide students time to pursue something of interest. Well, what we realized, long story short, is that for some students, they knew what that thing was that they wanted to pursue, right? For others, maybe their muscles had atrophied because they weren't expecting that sort of opportunity in school. So we had to create some scaffolding. So, you know, fast forward multiple years, I'm making a long story very short. Um, there are now tracks, right? So there's a track A, track B, track C for iProject, where track A is more like teacher provocations for little quick laps in design thinking project work just to give them a taste of process, some exposure to some different possibilities. Track B is uh, the student has an idea but doesn't quite know what to do with that idea. So how to like frame out some processes around um, that idea so it can emerge. And then track C is somebody that they maybe have been on this course before or they have experience elsewhere and they know how to drive a project and they know how what they're interested in. So to give you a concrete example, um, we had a group of, uh, I think they were all girls in this particular group. Uh, one of them had a brother who was uh, hearing impaired and had a near accident with an emergency vehicle because he couldn't hear the siren. And so they created a hearing wheel, uh, which is a steering wheel with LED lights built into it. And because of the RFID technology and emergency vehicles, what they transmit would get picked up by an RFID receiver on the car and it would light up a pattern if on the steering wheel, if it was an ambulance, a different one for a fire truck, a different one for a police car. So. Um, you know, their particular project came out of a personal connection, and it maybe was one of those compassion projects like Jason was talking about. Um, you know, I think for others, it's literally just pursuing something that they're, they're curious and wondering about. It's not necessarily for compassion for someone else. So we had 
um, a few boys a number of years ago get interested in what it was like to tan leather. They were hunters and wanted to understand, like make belts. And they quickly realized how difficult that is. But you can imagine some of the chemistry that they were learning through that process. And um, that was probably more for either just curiosity or entrepreneurial purposes. And then with the design thinking framework, often just, um, you know, in PBL world, we call it creating an entry event. So it creates that sense of wonder. And um, maybe it's introducing a group of students to a community or an idea that they had not thought of before. Um, and so one way we do that is through design briefs. So we actually collect um, design briefs from parents, from organizations around Mount Vernon, from organizations around the city, state, country. And um, just like an adult consulting company would accept design briefs, but our students work on those. So uh, we organize our time here in MODS, that stands for module. So our curriculum, instead of a ninth grader, um, all ninth graders taking the same science course, they actually, we have Lego bricks that are, can be snapped together so that one student might snap together Legos A, B, and C to get their biology credit. And somebody else might snap together Legos B, D, and F to get their biology credit. Um, so they're learning similar standards and competencies, but through different topic areas, all with under the umbrella of biology. So um, that was all to explain mods. So last mod, a group of students received a design brief from a, a local antique store that was interested in rebranding itself. Um, and so that became a catalyst for wanting to understand more about how to do that work. Um, we, a partnership with um, a kind of a, a family compound in history nearby turned into a public park and realizing that because of its location, the sound was really rough as cars trafficked by. And so um, the teacher organized the collision between the people who run that park and the students and they created six different prototypes for how to potentially address that sound issue at the um, you know, family property now turned public park area. So I would say compassion, uh, just plain old curiosity, provocations and connecting students with other people. There's, there's seems to be no shortage of problems to solve. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, y'all do such a great job with your campus, but I tell people all the time, the two most underutilized resources at most schools is their own campus and their parents, sure. because in most households with parents, at least one of the parents, if not both are working. And so their organizations have issues and challenges and problems that um, to get some quote unquote free labor and helps and for the students it's a win-win because those problems have relevancy and real world application and that starts to make them care at a deeper level mm -hmm. yeah I, I i hear agency in so much of what you're describing there right that the teachers have agency the students have agency and that they know that they can find problems and that they can actually then work on them with the school and through the school and that's something that, again, I think more and more schools need to consider. What, what does the atmosphere look like? You can have all these other outcomes, but if your atmosphere doesn't allow that. So the last question that we always like to end with, uh, Bo, is we like to 
ask you kind of what is the, the moonshot for you for education, whether that be your own uh, moonshot at Mount Vernon or one that you just hope in general for education? What's that really big out there idea that you hope that we can do more with? Yeah, and y'all ask great questions. That's another great question. Um, you know, I think that generally speaking, the moonshot is for schools to be even more organized around project possibilities, right? We've talked a little bit about um, project-based learning, project approach. We've talked about competency-based learning playlists. Um, I think that, you know, if, if and I'm not advocating for a bunch of for-profit education, but um, so much of the technology that is available in the world is geared because of for-profit applications, right? That that's a driver for developing these technologies. And I think about like the magic band at Disney World that has all of this information about me or my cell phone and what I choose to search, right? That I'm holding up. Um, has so much of this information about me. And regardless of how you feel about that, like in terms of privacy, the fact that uh, educational technology has not caught up with being able to track interests, hobbies, what I search for, not from like a creepy privacy point of view, but just from a like dishing me additional playlist items right? So YouTube is miraculously good at dishing me things that it that I might be interested in. Mm. Um, but what if school could do that, right? What if it knew that I was working on a project in um, like hydroelectric dam uh, engineering? It knew that I was working on a, that project that the three of us are working on about Shakespearean tragedy to, to write a, a white paper and to put these theater professionals through. And it could like suggest things that might be pertinent. And on the back end, the technology is so robust that um, it maximizes what automation can do so that teachers can spend more face-to-face -face human time with students. And the algorithm is actually generating ideas to the teacher and to the student about, you might wanna look at X, Y, or Z because of what you've been showing strength and interest in, but you also might need to look at PD and Q because of things that we think are really important for your exposure and for you to develop skills in. And you, you're showing a relative weakness in those areas right now. And teachers have to analyze data ad nauseum to get to those insights when in the corporate for-profit world, the machines do a lot of that work. And then the adults can spend time with humans in human endeavors because the machines are doing the algorithm work. So, um, you know, I think a school that is leveraging the potential of natural human learning around project orientation and organization with technologies that leverage um, the ability to understand trends, patterns, and offer suggestions. So, all right, you did it. That's an incredible moonshot. You got my my, uh, my wheels a turn in there. That is really awesome to think about how we could do more, but also how AI might become a factor for us to really think about again. Not not only what students are learning, but also what they have interest in that would better allow us to daily apply kind of what that experience looks like. That is a cool moonshot. All right, I could keep going on that.
fantastic. Well, Bo, I mean, we've got what 50 minutes an hour that has just flown by. Uh, I, I just appreciate you not only as a leader in our community, but just as a, a great human being that uh, makes me think every time that we're together and just appreciate your thoughtfulness and, and the way that you approach things. And uh, thanks for everything that you're doing uh, as a as a colleague and a friend. And thanks for taking the time to, to spend some time with us. Yeah, we are so we're so thankful, Bo. Um, hey, before we log off, we always like to give you a chance to kind of plug where people can follow your work or to keep up to date with what's going on with you or Mount Vernon. So where are those places people can check that out? Yeah, great. And thanks to you all. Thanks for the time and the interest and for all that you do to uh, spark enhancement, change and improvement in education, not just at um, All Saints Episcopal School, but well beyond that. So, um, I, you know, I'd say the most robust information is at mountvernonschool.org, right, of being able to kind of see the big picture of how we um, share stories and information about what's happening at Mount Vernon. Um, the Mount Vernon Instagram page, Facebook page, etc., cetera, um, I think are the ways for people to see teachers share work um, against that tag or against that handle um, and to see the actual concreteness of what people are working on with their their projects, their learning. Um, it's a, a great place to be and I'm so glad our schools that are, are connected and thanks for the time. Absolutely. Thank you. And we'll also include the TBOG University link there and some other things. So uh, make sure you check those out if you're listening to the podcast. And uh, again, uh, we hope that you'll join us. Uh, we have some guests that will be coming up in the 2022 that we're excited about. And also, uh, we are launching a new event this year. Uh, we will have our traditional All Saints Sandbox in January, um, but we also will have a, a, a new event called the Sand Flea event that will be happening in North Carolina in April. So we'll be telling you all more about that uh, in coming episodes. Thanks again for everybody for joining. And thank you, Bo. Thank you. Y'all take care.